You can go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 9. So we're coming through we're coming through the gospel of Matthew together. We're in Matthew chapter 9. <clears throat> loud I might not need this thing Good to go. Can everyone hear me? Okay, so Matthew chapter 9. And um, I've got a study guide that's out there. Should be on your seat or seat beside you. If you don't have one of those, maybe throw a hand up if you want one, and then we can get you one. I see some of here. Robbie, would you mind grabbing these, brother, Jared? Some folks back there. So you got a study guide coming if you need it, if you want it. Anybody that needs a study guide, throw that hand up over this way. Robbie, in this corner. Oh, you're going that way too. <laughs> Faster, Robbie. <laughs> <Just play. laughs> All right. Just kidding. Thank you, brother. Andrew, y'all can hear me okay? Okay. All right. So if you're in Matthew chapter 9, we're going to be in verses 9 through 13. And I want us to read this passage and then pray and just ask the Lord to help us to see clearly the glory of who Christ is and to enjoy it. I mean, don't forget that, right? Like we're supposed to read these words. And enjoy these words, enjoy the scripture, enjoy who Christ is. Um, so let's read these words and then ask the Lord to help us, okay? Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. <clears throat> As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, 
Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So I want us to walk through just sort of phrase by phrase, trying to understand the plain sense of what does this text mean? What does this text, this text of scripture saying to us about Christ and, and, um, and about Matthew? As far as a way you can break up this passage, verse 9 is Jesus' calling of Matthew. So verse 9, Jesus calls Matthew. And then verse 10 through 13, Jesus calls a whole lot of tax collectors and sinners like Matthew. So verse 9, he calls Matthew. Verse 10 through 13, you see Matthew, Jesus, and a whole slew of sinners and tax collectors. And he's calling them all to repentance. So, chapter 9, verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. So, who is Matthew? It says here that Matthew is sitting at the tax booth. So, Matthew is a tax collector. Now, that actually tells us a whole lot about Matthew, about who he was and what he was like. The fact that he was a tax collector tells us a lot. One commentator that I read, Michael Green, he said this. He said, Matthew exacted taxes for the Roman invaders. This system of taxation lent itself to corruption. And we know that's true because you remember John the Baptist when he was speaking to the tax collectors. I believe it's over in Luke 3. He's speaking to the tax collectors. They say, what must we do as far as repentance goes? And he says, don't collect more than you're supposed to. It lent itself to corruption, this role of tax collector. And he goes on to say, and tax collectors were proverbially rich and fanatically hated. People hated tax collectors. Not only did they fleece you, but they worked for the hated oppressors, the Romans. So these tax collectors had a horrible reputation uh, to say tax collector in this culture is to say it with a snarl. They hated these people. These were a corrupt and wicked people. Think about how many times this phrase, this phrase is used in the New Testament. Tax collectors and sinners. As if you got sinners, known, those who have a reputation as sinful people, but then you got these tax collectors that are in a category all by themselves. Tax collectors and sinners. Another commentator, R.T. France, he says he called these tax collectors the undesirables of society. And he says this, by working for an unpopular government sanctioned by Rome, a tax collector incurred the hatred and the disdain of Jewish patriots. These men were traitors. They were traitors just so they could have a fat wallet. He goes on to say, for Jesus to call such a man, a tax collector, for, for Jesus to call such a man to follow him was a daring breach of etiquette, a calculated snub 
to conventional ideas of respectability. What a, what a savior that we have. Think about that for just a minute. Just, just a, a snub to all conventions of men, of all, all typical conventions of respectability. And, and here's Jesus calling a tax collector to be one of his disciples. What a Savior. Now we have in verse 9 a really beautiful and simple gospel call. It's just two words. He says here, follow me. Jesus looks at this man and says, follow me. Now, the lead, the, the lead up to this call really helps you feel the weight of it. In other words, as you read the passages that came before what he says to Matthew, it helps you feel the weight of who is this man that's calling Matthew to follow him? Who is this man? And the passages that lead up to this verse, Matthew 9, 9, it tells us that this is the one that has authority over all nature. He told the mega storm to stop and it stopped. And all, and all the men looked at him and they said, who can this be that commands the winds and the waters and they obey him? This man has authority over hurricanes. And Matthew feels like, man, he's, he's got authority over me too. Another passage right before this shows that Jesus has authority over the whole spiritual realm. That legions, thousands of demons fall down before King Jesus and tremble before Him and beg Him not to torment them before the time. He's got authority over demons. He tells them what to do and they do it. And so Matthew thinks, man, He's got authority over me. And not only that, maybe the best of all, the passage we were in this past week, it says the Son of Man, this is directly from that passage, the Son of Man has authority, not only over the natural realm and the spiritual realm and demons and hurricanes, but He has authority to forgive sins. He has the authority to forgive sins. And that's an attractive thing to a sinful man like this tax collector, Matthew. The passages that have gone before, you know, when, when he was dealing with the demons, the demons called him the Son of God. Did you notice that? Son of God, they said. So Jesus is the Son of God. And then you get in the, ne the next passage, Matthew 9, where he, where he forgives the paralytic and he calls himself the Son of Man. So, so who is it that's telling, who is it that is telling Matthew, come follow me? The one with authority over all things. Even the authority to forgive sins. He, he's the one that is the Son of God and He's the Son of Man. He's fully God and yet He's fully man. He's the one that would be Emmanuel, God with us. The one from Daniel 7 that was, that's called the Son of Man. A human that steps in front of the Ancient of Days. And authority is given to Him over all nations, tribes, and tongues. Over the whole planet. And that Christ stands before Matthew and says, follow me. Come be my disciple. Now this is attractive, like I said, this is an attractive thing to Matthew. Because Matthew realizes two things. He, re he realizes the weight of his own sin, the sinfulness of his own sin, and he sees the glory of Christ. He sees the weight of his own sin and he sees the glory of Christ. He knew his own sinfulness. He knew his need for a Savior. Therefore, he, he flees to Christ for salvation, the one that has authority to forgive sins. 
He sees the glory of Christ. And since he sees the glory of Christ, Matthew's conversion, as we read it here, is a lot like that man that found treasure in a field. You remember that? The kingdom of heaven is like a man that finds treasure in a field. And he finds that treasure. He buries it. And he goes back and he sells everything that he has. He sells it all. And it says he does that with joy. He sells it all with joy. Why? Because he wants that field. He wants that treasure. And so Matthew sees the weight of his own sin and the glory of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he's willing to sell it all and to come after Christ. Now that, this call, follow me from the one that has authority to forgive sins, is not attractive to everyone. If someone does not feel the weight of their sin, if they do not understand the sinfulness of their sin, that they deserve God's wrath, that judgment's coming, and they're doomed if they're given if they're given justice, if they don't understand that, they don't feel any need for this Savior. If they don't see the glory of Christ, they don't feel any need to follow this Savior. They just don't care. So we've got a beautiful and simple gospel call, follow me. And also in verse 9, you see a simple and beautiful gospel response. Look at it in verse 9. He says, and he rose and followed him. Now isn't that simple? Follow me. And he rose up. And he followed him. Matthew left everything behind. He turned his back on everything. To follow Jesus Christ. He lost a good job. He lost a good paycheck. He lost favor with the Romans. So that he could follow Christ. Luke chapter 5 verse 28. Which is the parallel passage to our passage in Matthew. Luke 5 28 it says it like this. And leaving everything. He rose and followed him. And leaving everything. Jesus rose up. Excuse me. Matthew rose up. And followed Jesus. This is a saving response to Jesus Christ. It's a saving response to the gospel. This is repentance and faith. What must you do to be saved? You must repent and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what Matthew does right here. Think about that. He sees the sinfulness of his sin. He sees the authority of Jesus over everything, even to forgive his sin. He turns his back on the world. He turns his back on his own selfish pursuits, his own lusts, his own pleasures. He turns his back on it, on it all. And he comes instead under the authority of King Jesus. That's repentance. That's faith. His trust is in the one that said, follow me. And he responds by following Jesus in repentance and faith. Now, moving on to verse 10 through 13. Verse 10 through 13. Look at verse 10. And Jesus reclined at table in the house. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Now, this is Jesus at a, at a dinner with a lot of sinners, even tax collectors, it says here. Now, if you go read the parallel account in the Gospel of Luke, 
we realize that what's happening here is Matthew. This is happening at Matthew's house. Matthew is the one that's thrown this dinner party. So Matthew is converted. He follows Christ. And then here he is. Jesus is in Matthew's house. With all, who does Matthew invite to the dinner party? All his wicked and ungodly friends, his tax collector's friends, his sinful friends. He gathers them up in his home. This is Matthew's first act of service to Jesus Christ as his follower. In fact, Luke, Luke over there in Luke, it says that Matthew made him a great feast in his house. This is a great feast for Jesus. He made him a great feast in his house. This is an evangelistic dinner party. It says that they, we're going to find out at the end of our passage, we read just a moment ago, that Jesus is calling them to repentance. This is an evangelistic dinner party thrown by this new convert, Matthew. Now, look at verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw this, or the Pharisees saw what happened, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? That verse tells us something that the Pharisees hated what Jesus was doing right here. The Pharisees despised this. They couldn't stand it. What's he doing over there eating with sinners and tax collectors? Now why? Why did the Pharisees hate this so bad? I'll give you two quick reasons. One, it's pride and self-righteousness. Arrogance. Think about Luke 18. There's a story about a Pharisee and a tax collector that Jesus tells, a parable. It's over in Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. And it says that Jesus told this parable about some self-righteous people. They were so self-righteous, these Pharisees, and because of their self-righteousness, they condemned others. And so Jesus told this parable. And in this parable, you've got a Pharisee and a tax collector both coming into the prayer room. And you see the Pharisee stand up and he says, oh, God, thank you that I'm not like all these other sinful and wicked people. And I'm especially thank you, God, that I'm especially not like this sinful tax collector, just arrogant, full of pride And the Pharisee. And that's exactly what we have here. And the Pharisees think, how could this man that's supposed to be a godly man, a prophet, a rabbi, how could he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Full of pride, full of self-righteousness. And therefore, Luke 18.9, they condemned others. Now, second thing, and it's related of why the Pharisees hated this, is they were placing their own human standards on top of Jesus. You know, rabbis, rabbis aren't supposed to do this. Rabbis aren't supposed to eat with tax collectors and sinners. They're not supposed to have dinner with those people. Where did they get that standard from? That standard doesn't come from God. That standard didn't come out of the written word of God. It came from themselves. The Pharisees took their own standards, what they thought, the way they thought things ought to be done, the way they thought a rabbi ought to conduct himself, and they took their human standards and laid them on Jesus and judged him by them. But it wasn't the standard of God. And so... Again here in verse 11, if you look at it, who did they bring? Who did they bring this question to? Did they bring it to Jesus? 
Look at it in verse 11. It says that they brought it to his disciples. To his disciples. Now, why'd they do that? Why didn't they just bring their complaint directly to Jesus? Why'd they bring their complaint to his disciples? And I think it's for this reason. We'll call it cowardly slander. Cowardly slander. Now, the reason I say cowardly is because they want to stop this movement of Jesus. But if they want to stop this movement of Jesus, why not just hit it head on? Why not go straight to the source? Because they're cowards. Why not go straight to Jesus? Man, because no, no, man, no man ever spoke like this man. They're cowards. So instead of going directly to him, directly to the source, they go to his disciples, it says here. And they slander Jesus to his followers. Brothers and sisters, this is so often Satan's strategy. To try to uproot a work from God. To uproot what God is doing. Satan sends in slander. To destroy and thwart the work of God. Now notice the secrecy, right? They're talking to the disciples, not Jesus. Notice the secrecy there. Notice the suggestive language. Like they're not saying it straightforward. They're asking a little subtle question. Why does your teacher... Why does your teacher eat with these tax collectors and sinners? Just subtle, suggestive language. This is what slander's like. Notice how they're taking their own standard and they're going to the disciples and they're saying, why, you know, they're not saying it like this, but why is it that your teacher doesn't meet up to our standards? This is slander. Now, how does Jesus deal with cowardly slander? Verse 12 tells us he deals with it head on. <laughs> Verse 12 tells us that even though, even though they weren't even talking to Jesus, they were talking to his disciples, Jesus butts in. Jesus interrupts them and he begins to address it. Jesus doesn't let their slander sit in the darkness, but he drags it into the light. Now, Grace Community Church, I want us to learn from this. There really is a good work happening in our church. It's not perfect and we have weaknesses and praise God for, for what he's doing. But, but, but look, God's doing a work in this church and you better believe it that Satan will try to uproot it with slander. Cowardly slander. It's a weapon of the enemy. If you go read Proverbs chapter 6, verse 12 through 19, a really good passage to grab where it mentions the Lord hating those that sow discord among brethren. So Satan will try to uproot this good work. Not a perfect work, but a good work. He'll attempt to upward, uproot this work by sending in slander. And the question is, brothers and sisters, what will you do about it? What will you do about it? And I want to encourage you to be like Jesus. Jesus doesn't say, well, you know, they're, they're not talking to me. I better not inject myself here. They're not referring to me. They're not talking to me, so I better not get into their business. That's not my business. That's theirs. No, he butts right in. He deals with the slander. Don't let slander sit in darkness and become what Hebrews 12 calls a root of bitterness that defiles many. Slander prospers in the dark. 
And oftentimes that slander prospering in the dark, it stays in the dark by, by what seems like religious language, like, like hey, I'm going to tell you this, but don't tell anyone because I want you to keep it in confidence. And so often slander hides itself in the darkness in this sort of way. Grace Community Church, let us be a people that drag slander into the darkness and deal with it head on like our Savior. Now, if we read verse 12 and 13, we see Jesus' response to the Pharisees. Jesus' response to the Pharisees. And really, you could break up his response into three parts. He gives them in verse 12 a metaphor. And then verse 13, the first part of verse 13, 13a, if you want to call it that, he gives them homework. And then the last part of verse 13, he gives them a clarifying statement. So Jesus' response to these Pharisees as he interjects himself in this conversation is a metaphor, homework, and then a clarifying statement. The metaphor is in verse 12. Look at it with me. Verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. So this is common sense. Sick people don't need a doctor. Sick people don't need a physician. Healthy people, excuse me, sick people do need a doctor. Y'all are like, that wasn't common sense at all. <laughs> sick people need a doctor. Healthy people, as it says here, those who are well have no need of a physician. That's common sense. If you're well, if you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. But if you're sick, you need a doctor. Now, in this metaphor, who's the physician? Jesus is the great physician that can heal the sick. As we've already seen in our passage, not only the paralytic sickness, but even the sickness of his heart. He's the great physician. Who's the sick in this metaphor? It's the sinners and the tax collectors. Who are the healthy ones? Who are the, the well, the healthy ones? It's the Pharisees here. Now, is this teaching that the Pharisees are healthy, spiritually healthy, and therefore they don't need Jesus? Is it teaching that they're spiritually healthy and therefore they don't need spiritual healing? No, it's not teaching that at all. What it's teaching is this, is that these people think they're fine. These Pharisees feel like they're okay. That passage in Luke 18, thank you God, I'm not like all these men. I'm not like this tax collector. They don't feel their need for saving. They don't feel their sickness and their need for spiritual healing. They don't know that. And Jesus, Jesus says this here. Y'all don't even need a physician. Jesus, why are you hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? It's these people like this that they feel their need for a Savior. They know their need for a Savior. They're the sick and I'm the physician. Now the homework. So verse 13. The homework that Jesus gives them is this. Let's read verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Which is a verse from Hosea 6.6. 6. Okay. So Jesus looks at these Pharisees. And he says. Go and learn what this means. And he quotes a Bible verse. 
Man, you know that ticked them off. Do you remember there's a verse in uh, John chapter 9 when the blind man was healed? And the blind man got fed up with their questions. And he finally looks at them and he says, he says to the Pharisees, Do y'all want to be his disciples? And man, that made them mad. They said, We're disciples of Moses. You're his disciple. So can you imagine when the carpenter, this man hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, and the Pharisees see it, and he says, Hey, hey, y'all, hey, hey, you guys, go and learn what this means. And he quotes a Bible verse. Did he just give us scripture homework? And what did he want them to learn? Well, he wanted them to learn Hosea 6.6. I desire, go learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus, what are you doing hanging out with tax collectors and sinners? I'm showing mercy. Which you don't have. Let's go to Hosea 6. If you can flip there. I want us to go read that passage and some stuff around it. Hosea chapter 6. Go past Jeremiah and Daniel. And hit Hosea. Now, when you get to Hosea chapter 6, you've got really the people of God sort of split up into these two nations. You remember it, Israel and Judah. And Israel, that, that's the one, man, they were completely unhinged. They were just not even faking it anymore. He's been rebuking them, this prophet, God, been rebuking them. And in Hosea 6, he begins to turn his attention to Judah, the ones that still had the religious forms. Just as ungodly. But they had all the religious rituals, the religious forms, for the most part, still intact. And he begins to deal with them. In Hosea chapter 6, I want you to look at verse 4 through 6, and let's read that together. Look at this. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. Like the dew that goes away, that goes early away. What's he rebuking him for? Where's your love? Your love is like a morning. It's like the dew that just goes away. Where's your love? Verse 5. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets. I have slain them by the words of my mouth. Prophets stand up with the word of God in their mouth and it cuts them like cutting in a rock. And my judgment goes forth as the light. Verse 6, here's our verse. For, here's the heart of God. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Do you see what he's saying here? Yeah, yeah, you're still doing the sacrifices. You're still doing the burnt offerings. But you're missing something massive. What about the knowledge of God? What about knowing God? What about loving kindness? What about mercy? You're doing all your religious rituals, but what about mercy toward these others? What about loving kindness? 
You're missing it. You're straining out a gnat, but you're swallowing a camel. You do your sacrifices, you tithe, but you miss love and mercy. Jesus says, go, go learn, Pharisees, go learn what this means. I know you read it. Go learn what this means. Now, the clarifying statement, which is the rest of uh, Matthew 9 here. So back to Matthew 9, verse 13. This clarifying statement is pretty helpful. At the end of verse 13, he says, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Think about that. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Over in Luke 5.32, it adds two words to repentance. I came not to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners to repentance. Matthew 9.13 and Luke 5.32. What's it getting out here? What does this help us clarify? It helps us, clar- helps us clarify this. This metaphor that he gives the Pharisees. This homework that he gives to the Pharisees. This is about saving souls. Jesus came to save sinners. So when you think about this metaphor of Jesus being a physician to heal the sick, you should read it with an evangelistic bent. This is about Jesus not calling the righteous, those that think that they're okay, they think they're fine, they think they're good, but calling sinners to repentance. Understand that homework. Go learn what this means. I desire mercy. What do you mean mercy? I mean this mercy that wants to go to the lost world, these lost sinners, and call them to repentance. It's mercy with an evangelistic bent. Jesus is the physician that lost sinners need to be healed. The Pharisees, they're caught up in their sacrifices, their religious rituals, But what about sinners? What about sinners coming into the kingdom? They were lousy evangelists. Not only because they didn't know the gospel, but because they didn't care for these people. Lousy evangelists. Their love had grown cold. Their mercy was non-existent. And And therefore, they were uninterested in winning souls into the kingdom. But not Jesus. His love had not grown cold. His mercy was strong. And therefore, he's sitting there with tax collectors and sinners calling them to repentance. Okay. What can we learn from this passage? What can we learn from this passage of Scripture? There's a lot we can learn, but I want to give you, I want to leave you with three things. Okay. Number one, we can learn that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus is a friend of sinners. I mean, just, it ought to warm your heart to, to picture, picture Jesus the Christ. He's already shown himself to be the king of the universe. He's going to rule it all. And it ought to warm your heart to see him sitting there at a dinner party with the riffraff of society. No respectable rabbi would spend time with people like this. And man, don't you love it? 
Jesus is a friend of sinners. There's a verse over in Matthew 11, verse 19. Listen to this. This is what they said about Jesus. They said, a glutton and a drunkard. Now I bet Jesus hated that because he was neither of those things. Those are slanderous lies. But then this next thing they call him, they say, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. I bet he loved that. They called him a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And they thought that was a cut down. But I bet he loved that title. He is a friend of sinners. He came here to save us. 1 Timothy 1.15, it ought to be a memory verse that every one of you get. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Aren't you glad that Jesus, if you know yourself, aren't you glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners? Now, nobody here needs to twist up this story to mean something that it doesn't mean. Jesus is not a friend to sin. That's a big difference. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9 says that Jesus hates sin. He's not a friend of sin. He hates sin. Think about, think about what's actually happened in this passage. Jesus isn't just kicking it with these sinners and leaving them in their sin. That's not the picture that we have here. He's there as a physician to heal the sick. He's there calling them to repentance. He's not just spending time with them and leaving them in their sin. He's not just enjoying it with them. Don't twist this up. Jesus did not say, Matthew, I accept you as you are, and I come to kick it with you in the tax booth. No, he goes to the tax booth and calls him to turn his back on everything else and follow Christ. Follow himself. So don't twist this up. No one should twist this up. Don't let anyone twist this up to justify their own love of the world and their own love for acceptance by this world. But, you know, you get that qualifier in place, but look, that's just a qualifier. Don't miss the beauty of this. Jesus, though, is a friend of sinners. Just because I'm qualified, don't, you know, that's true. I believe it's true what I just said. I hope you accept it. But don't miss this fact. Jesus is a friend of sinners. God loves to come to sinners. And he loves to see them repent. I love if you go if you go read Luke 15 twice, it says that when a sinner repents, that there's joy in heaven. There's this explosion of joy in heaven. Luke 15, 7. And one other time in Luke 15, when a sinner repents. And, and in Luke 15, you've got that story of the prodigal that comes back. The sinner who repents. And when the prodigal comes back, what happens? The father throws a massive party for his son who had returned. Jesus loves to come to sinners. And he loves to see sinners repent. Think about this. Every single time a sinner repents... The grace and mercy of God is magnified as God saves them. And he loves to magnify his grace again and again and again. Aren't you thankful that Jesus comes to sinners and that he's a friend of sinners? 
I'm thankful for that in my own life. That Jesus came to me. That I was, I was in self-centered world to the core. Drunkenness and wickedness and worldliness all over my life. And Christ came to me like he's sitting with those tax collectors and sinners. And he, and he opened my eyes to the glorious gospel and saved my soul. And I know many of you have the same story. You that are in Christ. And listen, Ephesians chapter 2 commands that you remember that. Remember, Ephesians 2 says, that you were once lost and you were without Christ in this world. Don't you remember that? And praise God that Jesus is a friend of sinners. He came to you in your sin. He opened your eyes. And He saved your soul. I was meditating on that this week of Jesus, friend of sinners. And one of the ways you, know, you see that is the rejoicing that happens when a sinner repents. Not the rejecting. All who come to me, I will, I will never cast out, Jesus says. So not the rejecting of sinners, but the, but the welcoming in, the rejoicing when they repent. And I was just meditating on that, and I was thinking about specifically my mom and my dad. And I know many of y'all know this story as well, that my mom and dad were lost. And they were coming to this church you know, week after week after week. They were not taking the Lord's Supper. They were heeding that warning that's given almost every Lord's Day. In that season of life, the kids, my kids were asking. Every time kids, you know, family worship, what do y'all want to pray for? Let's pray for Nanny and Papa. Let's pray for Nanny and Papa. I want to pray for them. And suddenly something starts happening. And the kids are asking me, what's going on? Something's different. What's going on with Nanny and Papa? What's, what's happening with them? And I remember one Sunday sitting in this gathering. At that time, everybody would come get the, we, the Lord's Supper would be on a table. And there'd be a time where everybody came and got the Lord's Supper. And, you know, the kids' eyes, Papa had never done that before. And, and all of a sudden, I'm getting this pulling on my shirt. Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Papa's getting the Lord's Supper. And, man, you just imagine. Can you imagine? I know you know somebody that's been saved that you're really close to. The rejoicing in my heart. And you think about this, the rejoicing in that moment, the joy in that moment. There, there they are, taking the Lord's Supper, turning to the Lord Jesus Christ. There it is. You imagine the joy. And that's the explosion of joy every single time a sinner repents in heaven. The explosion of joy in heaven. He loves it. He loves it. Grace Community Church, please, don't grow cold to this. What thrills your heart? What thrills your heart? The sinners repenting? Going to them and giving them the gospel and seeing somebody saved? Does it thrill your heart or have you lost that? What are you here for? Part of the reason that God still has you on this planet is so that His gospel will go out and sinners will be saved and will gather up in heaven and worship His holy name. Do you feel that thrill of soul saved, that joy of sinners saved? May we never lose sight of this as a church. Jesus is a friend of sinners. Now, second, this scripture in this passage is a call for every single person who reads this. Every person that reads this, no matter where they are, you just hand them the Gospel of Matthew and they start reading it. Every time they get to this verse, chapter 9, verse 9, and the other passages like it in the Gospel of Matthew, 
It, it's, it's, it's a command to them. Come on. Come follow Jesus. Like Matthew follows him, you come and follow him. This passage brings every reader to a crossroad. Are you going to take the broad path or the narrow path like Matthew? It brings you to a crossroads. You go read Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 through 22, almost the exact same thing when there were some other disciples. That Jesus said, follow me. And they left everything. They left their nets. They left it all. And they followed Christ. We saw one like this earlier in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18 through 22, where they said, I'll follow you. And Jesus lays down a standard. Let the dead bear their own dead. You come follow me. So every time you read this, it should bring you to a crossroads. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, you haven't been saved, then when we read this, Matthew chapter 9, verse 9, he said to him, follow me. That ought to be ringing in your ears. Friend, follow Christ. Follow Christ. And what's Matthew do? He rose and followed him. He left it all behind. He turned his back on the world. On his own self-centered life, he turned his back on it and he followed Christ. And you need to do the same. What's holding you back from that? This passage is bringing you to a crossroads. You need to follow Christ. Every time you hear this and you ignore it and you push it off to later, your heart becomes more hardened and more hardened and more hardened. You've heard it this morning. Follow me, Jesus says. Follow Christ. Now, third and final thing I want you to take away is that we ought to imitate Christ. Christ Jesus is a friend of sinners. And Grace Community Church, hear me on this last point. Be a friend of sinners like him. This passage can help us as we think about our life of evangelism. And evangelism is not for the, the, you know, the, the special forces Christian. Okay? Every Christian ought to have this heart, this desire. I want to see souls saved. The Lord's commanded me and you and all of us that are in Christ, make disciples. Go in all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. And this passage teaches us how, at least some things, about how to do that if we imitate Christ. So just a few things that you can imitate in Christ. Brothers and sisters, go to them. Go to the sinners. Jesus is going to the tax booth, calling Matthew away. He's sitting in the dinner party full of tax collectors and sinful men and women. Just the riffraff of society. He's sitting there calling them to repentance. Be like Christ in this. Don't be a practical monk. You've heard of being a practical atheist. You're not really an atheist, but you know the way, the way your life's lived out, you live as if God doesn't exist. Well, don't be a practical monk. You're not a monk, but don't live as if you're just in your own little bubble and there's no mindset about getting this gospel out to a lost world, going to the sick and dying. Don't be a practical monk. C.T. Studd, I love this quote, C.T. Studd said, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. 
I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. That's the mindset. Grace Community Church, imitate your Savior. Be a friend of sinners to love them in mercy and call them to repentance. Get a notorious sinner into your home and feed them and call them to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't just sit around with other believers talking about how wicked and evil abortion is. Go out to the abortion mill, preach the gospel, win them to Christ. Don't just complain about how messed up this generation is. How it's lost its moral compass. Don't just sit around with other believers and complain about that. Go get to the college campus. Find the worst of sinners and befriend them and call them to Christ. Don't sit around with believers and just complain about how this world's going to hell in a handbasket and this push for homosexuality and the transgender nonsense. Don't, don't, don't just sit around and talk about that. Go into the darkness. Penetrate the darkness with the light. Have an evangelistic dinner party like this newly converted Matthew. Don't be the Christian scholars who just sit around and learn a lot. Now, I love learning. We ought to be a people that love learning and love reading and love studying God's Word. But don't just be Christian scholars that sit around and learn a lot. Go, Jesus says, go learn what this means. I want you to be a people full of mercy that go to sinners, that get down in the ditch and lead people out of it. If the biggest outreach you have is conservative political means, you might be a Pharisee. Go to the lost. Go penetrate the darkness. So I think going to the lost is one thing you can learn evangelistically from Christ here, his example. And let me mention one other thing. I want to encourage everyone here to have a heart full of mercy and call sinners to repentance. Now I'm putting those two side by side for a reason. Have a heart full of mercy and call sinners to repentance. Now the heart full of mercy is obvious, right? Jesus says, go learn what this means. I desire mercy. You know, like me sitting with the tax collectors and sinners to call them, see? Heart full of mercy, like, like a physician, full of compassion for the sick. Have a heart full of mercy, okay? But also right beside that, Calling sinners to repentance. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's calling sinners to repent, to come out of their sin and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the polite police hate that. That's too upfront. You can't do that. You can't call sinners to repent. There should be an example in front of them. 
But Jesus is calling sinners to repentance. And these two things, why I mention them together, these two things ought to coexist in the life of the church, in the life of every believer. A heart full of mercy, and yet calling sinners to repentance. I'm so sick of hearing those two things being put in opposition to each other. Like over here, you got the people that are really merciful and, and they're kind. Now, they would never call anybody to repent of their sin. They would never be too upfront with the gospel. They're just merciful. And you got the people over here that are bold with, with the gospel and they're preaching repentance. And man, they just need to slow down and have more mercy. And these things are getting ripped apart. And yet you don't see that in this passage. We see Jesus, heart full of mercy and what? Calling sinners to repentance. There's another verse. You don't have to flip there, but Mark chapter 10, verse 21, the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler said some, some stuff, desiring to be saved. And it says, and Jesus looked at him, loved him. There's that heart full of mercy, full of love for this man. He loved him and he said, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come Follow me. Now this man was disheartened by that saying. And he walked away and never followed Christ. Some won't follow. Some will hate you. And some will love you. And some will follow Christ. But these two things need to go together in our lives. Heart full of mercy. Full of love for the lost. And yet willing and able and bold. In calling them to turn away from this world. That can't satisfy calling them to Christ, who's the Savior of sinners. So before I pray, just in, in summary, if you're here today and you're without Christ, please, like, look at Matthew's example. God is calling you through this example of Matthew, through this scripture, come to Christ. Come to Him. And if you're here today and you're in Christ Jesus, my brothers and sisters that I'm looking at all across this room, Worship Jesus as a friend of sinners. Just consider this little insight into his life and worship him. And then brothers and sisters, go imitate him. Go imitate him out in the world. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Lord, for these words. God, I pray that you would help us. If there's any here today, young child or adult, Lord, that doesn't know you, God, I pray that you would save them. God, I pray that they would not harden their hearts and turn away from this call to follow you. But I pray they repent and believe in your gospel. And Lord, I pray, I pray, God, that you would help all of us at this church. Help us to not lose sight of this, Lord, to worship you as the friend of sinners. This love and mercy you poured out, that you came, you came into this world to be with us and save sinners. And God, please help us to imitate it. Lord, please deliver us. Deliver us, Lord, from an intellectualism that doesn't care for the lost. 
or from religious rituals, God, from doing all the religious rituals, Lord, and yet not learning this, that, that you desire mercy. Please, Lord, protect us as a church from being like these Pharisees. God, I pray that you would open so many doors for your gospel to go forward through the lives and the, the mouths of your church. Thank you so much for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.